0: people have been assuming that Alzheimer's was pretty simple. It was a matter of beta amyloid. It was a matter of tail tangles. And even though they were able to intervene in those little components, they couldn't show any good effect. But once you begin to understand the the true complexity of it, you realize there are places you can intervene that are much more effective.
1: Hello, lovely listeners. Today is the second anniversary of our podcast. and I am beyond thrilled to report that we're in 84 countries around the world and have just shy of 100,000 downloads. Thank you so much, our loyal listeners. Enjoy this interview and please leave a comment on our website, zestfulaging.com. I really do read every single one. Back to the show. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview thoughtful, inspiring and influential guests who are changing the way we think about what is possible in our lives, especially as we age. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful ager. And I love to hear from you, my listeners, please leave me a comment on zestfulaging.com. I really do read your comments and I do appreciate your feedback. Our music is courtesy of Judy Banker, who was a guest on Zestful Aging. Her CD, Buffalo Motel, is out, and you can find out more about her on JudyBanker.com. Well, as usual, I've got my loyal Jack Russell right by my side, so let's begin. We have a really wonderful interview for you today. Dr. Fossil is considered the world's foremost expert on telomeres, aging, and age-related disease. He gave the very first talk at the National Institutes of Health on reversal of human aging. He published the first articles on the potential of telomeres as a clinical intervention two decades ago. He's the author of the only medical textbook in this field. He's now president of Telocyte, a biotech firm taking telomore therapy to FDA human trials to cure Alzheimer's. And a little tidbit about Dr. Fossil, he says he's the only person who's ever been bitten been bitten by, kissed, and wrestled with a gorilla. Welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Nicole. Yeah, that's part of Zestful Living and Zestful Aging. I think you hit it around the head.
1: <laughs> yeah, I got, before we talk about curing Alzheimer's, can we talk about the gorilla, please?
0: Yes, that was Cocoa. Um, Oh, Coco.
1: I didn't realize it was Coco.
0: Well, it was back in 1974, and Penny Patterson, who was Coco's owner, um, needed somebody to do babysitting. So every Wednesday for six hours, I would be the babysitter of a gorilla, which sounds like fun, and it was. But it was also humiliating because... Here's a gorilla who has a bigger vocabulary than I do. <laughs> oh,
1: goodness. and how how many words did he uh, learn to, she, she, she yeah. I'm sorry, sign, right. how many, what was I, she signing I, after?
0: I don't know, and, and the reason I say that is because there are always disputes about that, that figure. You know, a lot of people who think Coco signed a lot think she knew a lot of sign language, people who are... Um, a, who don't trust that? or don't believe it. Tend to think she had a very small vocabulary. I, I do know that she had a bigger sign language vocabulary than I did, mm-hmm. um, and I know that she was in a very, in a very real sense, in there. As I said, it's you know, it's uh, it's odd to bit to bite, have been bitten by Russell and and kiss a gorilla, but she was in there um, more so than maybe as much as your average four-year-old there was somebody there it was fascinating to me oh. it was an honor oh. i wasn't paid for it it was just a pleasure but it was one of those things that add three dimensions and color to your life you know, it, it never fits in your CV, but you wouldn't give it up for anything.
1: Many oh, how like that. fascinating. I, that, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of primates. And when I went to Costa Rica and there were monkeys, I couldn't stop shrieking, which caused a lot of uh, attention. But uh, uh, uh. it had been a lifelong dream of mine to see monkeys. And I, 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 I kind of understand that draw about the fascination of like, this looks an awful lot like me.
0: Yes, it was, um, she was fun. She had a sense of guilt, uh, a sense of, of uh, outrage. I'll never forget the time I, I tried to convince her that there was a crocodile in her cage. She wouldn't believe me, oh. and I insisted. She finally went in and looked. There was not one there, and then she gave me a dirty look.
1: Oh, my well,
0: God. You know what I mean. She she knew that I had done something wrong. I had, I had misled her. her. I had tricked her and i felt sort of badly but i laughed and we giggled and, and you know i tickled her and it just it was fascinating fascinating oh that, that whole concept goodness. of you know how much is somebody in there um you know the, my, my cat has a personality your dog has a personality. my mm-hmm. dogs have personalities mm-hmm. um, horses have personalities and, and some animals i think more so than others and mm-hmm. she had the personality and the 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 soul of a four or five-year-old. She was in there. There was somebody home. It wasn't just oh, a one-year-old, wow. and it wasn't a 20-year-old. It was, it was a young child in there. You could,
1: you could sense oh it. Oh, my gosh. That, I, we could do a whole hour on cocoa, I think. Uh, how wonderful. But we should probably focus on the fact that you are the world's foremost expert on telomeres. Oh. Now, not everybody knows what that is. So could you give us a little explanation of what
0: those are? Yeah the, the telomeres are pieces at the end of your chromosome and in some sense they don't matter and you don't really need to know much about them but they 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 modulate they control gene expression uh, let me give you a sort of a feel for this um, back about a hundred years ago there were people who honestly believed that every cell in your body had different genes and we finally realized that all the genes were pretty much the same in all of your cells they're just expressed differently it's as though you had the same symphony orchestra and each cell plays a slightly different tune you know one cell plays a tune for your skin another plays a tune for your brain cell another for muscle cells but it, it turns out the same is true as we age that is, my cells, when I was nine years old, are the sa- have the same genes that they have now. The genes haven't changed, but the expression has changed uh, in the last 60 years. So, you know, the, the tune that my cells were playing at age nine is a different tune in some sense than they're playing now. It's a slower tune for one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the telomeres control that. They act sort of like the symphony orchestra conductor. Um, it's not that they are critical in playing the tune, but they do direct the, the pace and the Tune.
1: And how do we influence them?
0: Well, that's, it's funny you say that because they're influenced by a million things. Uh, for example, um, if, if I look at my skin and say I've got a piece of skin that's never been exposed to sun and another piece that exposed to sun regularly, for example, your nose or the back of your hand, that kind of thing. Um, the, as the cells divide because they're stressed because of sun, Sun damage. Um, as they divide, the telomeres shorten, and that helps change the pattern of gene expression. So, any number of things can alter the, the pattern of gene expression through the telomeres, um, but it's, it's very much a complicated thing. It's a matter of injuries, it's a matter of your age, it's a matter of your diet, a matter of your stress levels, mm-hmm. a matter of exposure to radiation, to, to toxins, a million things. Uh, I mean, I think of dozens right away, but probably a million things alter. Uh, the rate of telomere loss. Um, they alter your rate of aging. I think we all know that some people at, at, at and take an age of 65, some people look older than others and that has to do with the sort of not only the genes they have but the lives that they've led it well. Most of us I think have seen pictures of our grandparents for example or you look at an old, oh, a Topper movie would be a good example. There's as I recall a banker in there that looks to me like he's about 70 and they claim he's 45. Well people aged faster in many ways 100 years ago than they do now. We have it easy in some ways. It's that, that rate of living. It's the kind of things you go through. Uh, I must say that I think that having a little bit of joie de vivre and a little zestful approach to life probably helps.
1: Hmm. Yes. In fact, I think there's research that supports that. So if we were going to focus on our telomeres, is there, are there things that are fairly straightforward and simple that would help Them stay nice and long.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that it's funny you ask that because the answer is yes, but but most people won't. You know the the most important things you can probably do are the same things that your grandmother told you, and that your your family doctor tells you. The family doctor costs more than your grandmother, but you probably pay attention to neither one. And (laughs) they're not very sexy things. Things like Mm -hmm. fasten your seatbelt and don't smoke, exercise regularly, eat well. I mean, go on and on about things that make your life healthier and and longer Um, but I think most people know those these are not wildly unusual things Mm -hmm. Uh, you know we can talk about things like different diets and you could talk about things like meditation Um, but in fact most of the really important things are pretty obvious they're pretty Mm -hmm. simple
1: and uh, and would you talk a little bit at you know I My specialty is eating disorders and people are always you know should i fast and then there's intermittent and then there's keto and they're vegan i mean people are really trying to figure out what to do with food maybe you know overthinking it um and you know get obsessed What I do you? Sure. What do you recommend?
0: Well, it's funny because I had a uh, there's I, I've lectured for years on biology of aging and there's one classic lecture I give about uh, the gastrointestinal system and diet and food, and the very first slide I put up has a small fuzzy animal, and I said, "Does anyone know what this animal is?" And there's blank hundred students in the class blank steers, and I said, "In fact, I will give an extra five points to anybody on their final exam if they can d- identify the animal." Still blank. I said, "This is." Lemus, lemmus, the norwegian lemming almost everything you know about diet and food is lemming behavior Uh, it comes in fashions it comes in waves we believe it all and then five years from now we think the opposite is true whether it's high carb low carb high fat low fat high protein low protein fasting no fasting and i said i'm not here to tell you that there isn't truth involved there there are really important things to say about nutrition and diet but most of what we tend to focus on comes in waves of fashion and I think you need to get over that Uh, take it with a grain of salt if I can use another food food (laughs) analogy you know Um, and even there I can't tell you how many times even in medicine where we've had some new new physician fresh out of residency who will see some article about anything and it could be food as well and say this is the ultimate truth and my partners and I look at each other and say yes except five years ago they proved the opposite ten years ago they proved the same thing fifteen years ago they proved the opposite Um, And that's not to say that there, again, isn't truth. Um, I think we all know sort of the basics of a good diet, but there's so much that people argue about, and often the arguments and the the fashions are no more than that. They're just Mm. fashions. Again, there is truth. I don't mean there isn't. But you have to beware of sort of going off on odd tangents just because it's the latest diet.
1: And people get so obsessed and desperate, you know. They do. The, they yeah. Do. No, I, I, I really agree with that. And most of what we know really works is staying away from stuff with, you know, skews uh, <laughs> codes and keeping mm-hmm. it fresh, keeping it colorful. Um, that kind of thing.
0: Oh, I love that old uh, saw about, you know, the things to eat in the grocery store. One, uh, never, always eat from around the edge of the grocery store, never the main aisles. That is, mm-hmm. go for the fresh fruits, vegetables, the meat counter, the dairy rather than the center aisles. Never eat any, anything your grandmother couldn't pronounce. Yes, yes, you know? yes. <laughs> yeah, sure. there's a lot to be said for sort of that sort of basic approach to diet. Mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. Yep, that's... There's a lot to be said. It's really complicated, and I think people can get a little over-fixated on that. You know, there are a lot of other things. So talk a little bit about exercise, because that's another one that people get a little uh, over-zealous or under-zealous about.
0: Both. Both. You're right. Uh, You know, we all know we should exercise probably more than we do. Um, But even there, I I can't tell you how many studies I have seen that— uh, pretend to say that exercise will prevent cancer or extend your lifespan, a- and I think it does. But, um, but the study often is sort of just no more than a correlation. What they show is not necessarily that exercise or a good diet uh, extends lifespan or prevents cancer or disease. What they show is that people who are healthy tend to exercise and eat good diets. Well, we sort of knew that. It may be that, that, for example, that people who get cancer are the same people who have genes that tend to make them um, a little less prone to exercise. So it's not the exercise that's protective, it's Mm -hmm. that they have the wrong genes. And I don't think it's quite that. I really do think that exercise has a role. I just see so many studies that say that, but in fact, that's not what the data shows. I'll give you a funny example about this with correlations. Um, If I were to go to a grocery store and measure everything that everybody bought, Everything you bought, everything. And I watch everybody who comes out of that grocery store for the next two decades, and I look to see who gets heart attacks. I would discover something very interesting, which is that the thing you can buy that appears to be the most likely to show protection, apparently, against heart attacks, are infant diapers. Well... You know, but it's not because infant diapers are protective. <laughs> it's because 25-year-olds are the people who buy infant diapers. And I personally have seen 25-year-old guy get a heart attack, but it doesn't happen very often. It's usually older oh, people who do. that's
1: fascinating. And it's no
0: more than a correlation. But that's true of so many dietary things, too. People assume that because, mm-hmm. you know, there's a correlation, that's causation. It's not. It, there are good diets, but, again, the correlations are not good enough and infant diapers don't protect you any more than buying adult diapers cause disease there's another bad correlation people who buy adult diapers tend to have more disease well yes of course they do because they're older well that's not because infant diapers are protective or adult diapers are bad it just that's a correlation it means nothing mm-hmm. but there are things that we need to be a little wiser about about exercise too and I do think exercise helps it really does in a number of ways blood pressure comes to mind Uh, i just a little leery about studies that purport to show that when the study doesn't show that. It simply shows no more than infant diapers. Mm
1: -hmm. That's that's really interesting. So um, when we talked earlier, you showed me uh, photos of these incredible gardens that you have uh, Mm. around your house. Is that something, those kind of activities that help us age well?
0: I think so, and it's not the garden per se any more than it's tennis or, or knitting or, or playing with your grandchildren. It's the attitude involved. It's the mm-hmm. way you go at it. If I were to go out gardening uh, in a sort of a crazy, stressful fashion, I'm sure it would be no good for me. And that could be true of any number of thing, other things, too. Uh, no, it's the attitude. Um, uh, here's a, a little trivial example from me. And it, it came home to roost because of something someone else uh, pointed out to me about it. But years ago, many of us, when we get our first job, we'll go out and buy something. You get your first paycheck and people will go out and they will get a car or a computer or whatever it is. They they tend to buy some little gift to themselves that says, now I'm an adult and I have a paycheck. I did. But what I did was I went out on my credit card and bought $2,000 worth of daffodil bulbs. And decades later, they are still coming up quite happily. Thank you. And whoever got the cards now in the junk heap, whoever got the computer, it is about 14 generations past. Whatever people tend to buy. But to me, that mattered. And it was it was something um, I don't mean to say quite spiritual, but you're right. There was a certain zest in it to come back to that. Um, And I think that has to be true of. The sort of things we do. For some people, it's woodworking; for some people, it's cooking.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but I think it's the attitude in which you approach it, rather than the the activity you engage in.
1: Yeah, it's like the essence of life. It's when and something about planting bulbs. I you know I live in upstate New York, and we have a very long, dreary winter. And when I plant those bulbs in the fall, there's something about there's hope involved because mm-hmm. I know that we'll get yeah. through the the lake effect blizzards but in the spring you know it's going to happen it's this gift is going to come forth that I planted there's something about hope for the future
0: I think that's it Um, and again you could overdo it you can stress yourself about it but if you approach it right it makes sense it reminds me of an old story about uh, a young man who goes to the the abbot of a Buddhist monastery and he wants to gain enlightenment and asks how long it will take, and the Buddhist master says, well, it will take, you know, 10 years. And the guy says, what if I work twice as hard? And the Buddhist master says, then it will take 20 years.
1: Ah, um, I you know. love that. that. I've heard that, and I, 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 I need to put that on a sticky somewhere for myself, because sometimes I tend to be a little driven, um, like mm-hmm. like other people, and it, it doesn't help, actually. I think yeah, it doesn't. Great. I think
0: you're right. Again, back to zestful or uh, having an elan or having a, a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, having some sense of delight in the universe. A sense of awe. I sometimes think that's true of religion as well. It's not It's not just the, the, the particular religion or the spiritual values. It's having some. It's having some values. Some idea that the universe is more than just you. It's looking out at night at the stars and being mm-hmm. awed by it. Uh, it's being awed by a young child. It's that sense of there's something more to to the entire universe than me.
1: Absolutely and we see that uh, certainly um, in the the Harvard study of development you know that they talk exactly about these things and I'm wondering if you can explain in layman's terms how your research is different. We, We had talked you and I about how you've You've taken a very different perspective on Alzheimer's, and that's why you know you started this company. That's why you want to get FDA human trials going to cure Alzheimer's. Would you be able to describe your findings and your perspective in a way that uh, a layperson could understand?
0: I think so. Um, the The essence of it is understanding that, Things are systems, they're not components. There was a, a, a friend of mine who said to me, he had spent his whole life working for Airbus and doing uh, as a global executive in the airspace industry. And he said he had designed jet engines. And he said to me, you know, when a Rolls-Royce jet engine fails uh, and the fan blade breaks, I don't ask what's wrong with the fan blade. I ask what's wrong with the engine that made the fan blade fail. And he said, that's the kind of thing that we're doing at Telesite. And I see what he means. Too often, we focus so narrowly on the component, the biomark or the hallmark, the piece, the little piece, the tree rather than the forest, that we miss the forest. We miss the system. We miss the way things work. Um, Here's another example. I have a, a slide I'm going to be using in, in two weeks in San Francisco. And I'm, I'm talking about a particular disease that everyone in the audience has probably heard of. And I say, here are the components of the disease, the hallmarks, the symptoms, the signs. And they're, they're typical of many other illnesses, uh, you know, nausea and vomiting, some bleeding in this case, uh, headaches, uh, seizures, death. Okay. It's a bad disease. But if you look at it just in the components, you'll never be able to cure it. If you say, well, they've got nausea, I'll have to give them something for nausea. They have a fever, I'll give them something for fever. They've got bleeding, I will go get to blood bank to get... You're missing the point. You're missing the entire system. What I'm talking about actually is Ebola virus. And Ebola has a high fatality rate, but you can't treat it successfully by just treating symptoms, just treating components. What you have to do is understand that it's a virus. And if you can come up with a vaccine, yes, you can cure it. And I think that's true when we're looking at age-related diseases, particularly in this case, Alzheimer's. For, you know, Alzheimer's was first described about 110 years ago, and even then, the person who first described it says, said that, you know, there are beta amyloid plaques in the brain of these patients. But he said, I don't think that that's the the disease, that's Mm -hmm. part of it. And too often we look at the parts, and that's been true recently in the last, say, 20 years. Uh, most big pharma uh, and even biotech companies worldwide have looked at individual components like beta amyloid and tau tangles, and I could list others. But they're approaching it, again, from a component standpoint. They're looking at the fan blade and not the whole engine. And in this case, what we need to do is understand how complex it is. So I'm, I'm going to make a, an odd remark here, which is when it comes to age-related diseases, we tend to assume it's really simple. Things wear out. And that's the way it is Mm -hmm. in consequence there's very little we can do about it Uh, not quite nothing but not a lot you know i think about heart disease and statins and coronary bypass grafts but they're not all that effective and the problem is we look at it too simply and i think that as is true for so many things in the world if we truly understand the complexity of it then the answer is simple so it's irony if we look at things as being simple it's very complex and hard to solve but once we realize the complexity and, and admit it and understand it, then the answer turns out to be relatively simple. And that's what's been going on here. People have been assuming that Alzheimer's was pretty simple. It was a matter of beta amyloid. It was a matter of tail tangles. And even though they were able to intervene in those little components, they couldn't show any good effect. But once you begin to understand the, the true complexity of it, you realize there are places you can intervene that are much more effective. So um, here's an example. We know that Alzheimer's is related to age. It is, very few 25-year-olds get Alzheimer's. I've seen some 45-year-olds do, 65-year-olds more so, 80-year-olds more so. Well, age has an effect. On the other hand, we know people who are 100 who don't, and we know, as I say, 45-year-olds who do, so it's not absolute. So what does aging really have to do with Alzheimer's? Or close head injuries. We know that people who've had multiple close head injuries, for example, football players, uh, will tend to have a higher risk of Alzheimer's. And yet we know some people who've had head injuries and don't have Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. We know people who've never had head injuries who do have Alzheimer's. So it's not quite a cause, and yet it plays a role. You see, it's already beginning to get complex. If we look at Parkinson's disease, we know that there's an increased risk if you're exposed to certain insecticides. Paraquat come to mind. But again, it's not absolute. So it, it becomes complex. And out the other end, we know there's some people with beta amyloid who have Alzheimer's. others no, that don't. We know that upstream, some people have certain genes. APOE4 comes to mind. Some people don't. It's not absolute. It's very messy and complex. But once you begin to look at that carefully and say, well, that's fine, but what's going on here? I think you get someplace. This, the paper that I put out last week that talks about this was a result of a talk I was invited to give by the Alzheimer's Association a year ago. It was a talk on animal models. And what we knew was that uh, there's a standard saw which is everything works well in mice, nothing works in humans. Mm. and. and I was to sum up the day but I got up instead I said listen the main problem with all of this is not that we don't have targets like beta amyloid or that we don't have techniques like monoclonal antibodies which is a a big one um the problem is that we don't have a model that explains what's going on we're not looking at this as a system we're looking at this in little pieces Mm -hmm. Um, and Afterwards, uh, somebody got up and said, a lot of people got up actually and congratulated me, but one person got up and said, will you write up your model? You've explained that we need a model. Do you have one?" I said to do? It turns out he was the editor-in-chief of Alzheimer's and dementia, which is the preeminent global journal on Alzheimer's. But that's what I talked about in this paper. I said, listen, there is a model and there is a way of explaining all of these upstream risk factors like genes and head injuries and uh, um, exposure to radiation and toxins and millions of things. Mm -hmm. Well, easily dozens. And all these downstream things. And the way it works is to go through cell senescence. And notice that what's happening is that the behavior of these cells is changing as we get older, which is why aging plays a role but also if you have an injury or an infection, you increase the rate of cell aging. And if you look downstream, you begin to see exactly why we get beta amyloid deposition and tau tangles and mitochondrial dysfunction. And again, dozens of other things. It all makes sense when you begin to put it together as a single model. And more importantly, you begin to see that there is a more effective point of intervention rather than trying to deal with individual downstream symptoms You begin to deal with something right in the middle that you can get your hands on, in this case, cell senescence. So that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a model that, for once in history, explains all of these things. Now, that doesn't mean the model's right. But the model is consistent with the data, it does explain what's going on, and it offers a novel point of intervention that, so far, in animals has worked very well. So it's worth trying. I think it's a much more effective model than anything we've had so far.
1: Mm-hmm. Did you have an aha moment where you were looking and, and and researching and and thought, wait a minute, we've been doing this all wrong?
0: Oh, Nicole, that came to me forty years ago, forty-five years ago. Ah. So, and you know what it was? I was engaged. I was out at Stanford Medical School, and I was teaching a neurobiology, and my interests were developmental neurobiology, which again, like. The galaxy and the stars, and it awes me, absolutely floors me. Um, the way the nervous system gets put together in a in a, a neonate in a baby, just stunning to me. And I think most people have the same feeling. But when I turn to people and talk about the other end of life and talk about the way that the brain, for example, unravels, people would shrug and say, "Well, what do you expect? You get old things fall apart. And I remember thinking, That's an awfully blasé attitude. (laughs) And it occurred to me that any time somebody is that blasé, it usually means they don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) It's sort of that that feeling of, you know, well, of course the earth is flat. Everybody knows that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Or, of course, you can't have heavier-than-air aircraft. Everybody knows that.
1: Uh Well,
0: that may be true. It may be not. But you've just sort of assumed it. And that was what I thought here. I thought, when you just think aging, it just happens. Oh, you get old, you rust, things fall apart. I thought, I bet it's more complicated than that. And it is. It's much more complicated. So that was my aha moment,
1: 45 mm-hmm. years ago or so. Mm-hmm. I see. And, and that it sounds like that really kind of oriented your research, that when you started doing your own work, you went at it in a more systems kind of way.
0: That's true. At least I was looking for that system. Uh, for me, it, the, the change actually came about finally in about early 1990s. I was at a conference. Uh, it was a conference on aging. In fact, I was going to write a textbook on aging, except that I ran into a friend of mine who I thought wrote about a textbook. And I also was trying to piece together how all of these things worked. Make a system. Uh, it, the analogy is the blind man and the elephant. Um, it, you see all, in those days, you saw all these people working in the aging community. Um, and they were honest people, they were bright people, they had integrity, they worked hard. But they one would describe the elephant's ears and the other the elephant's trunk and the other tail and the other the side and, and so on. But no one was talking about the elephant and they were all disagreeing about what, quote, caused aging, unquote but in the early nineteen nineties i ran into some of this early work on cell senescence and telomeres and i began to realize you could begin to see the structure of the elephant you could see the bones and that got me intrigued so that led me to put out that first book on aging and the alza and, and putting a talk together for the nih um, it was an invited talk and that was an interesting one too because it, it sort of epitomizes my feelings about all of this that is that you know theories are good but data is better the talk at the nih was uh, reversing human aging. And the auditorium at the NIH is very steeply raked. And so people are literally looking down on you, but figuratively as well. Uh, you know, I'm giving the first <laughs> lecture called reversing human aging. And of course, they're all sort of thinking, what an idiot. And I stopped at the beginning of the talk. I said, listen, before I go on, let me say that an hour from now, anyone who leaves this room and thinks you can reverse aging is naive. Mm. But anyone who leaves this room in an hour and thinks you cannot reverse aging is equally naive. If you have any sense, you will leave this room in an hour and saying, I don't know if we can reverse aging or not, show me the data. Now, let me tell you what data there is. And I went on with the lecture. But I think that's still true. I think that when it comes to things like curing Alzheimer's, it's not a yes, no question. It's a question of show me, show me the Mm -hmm. data, do it. Uh, We have a model that I think explains not only how Alzheimer's works, but predictively as well. That is, it predicts exactly why several years ago the Eli Lilly trial failed with solanizumab and the problem with the biogen ESi study and anacadamide predicted those. And it predicts that we should be able to intervene effectively to stop and to partially reverse cognitive decline in Alzheimer's. But that's good. A logical model a consistent model a a sensible well thought-out model is good but data is better every time so we will take this to FDA human trials and see if we're right I think we are but again show me show me the data Mm
1: -hmm. so how does how does this happen what's the logistics you have this data and then uh, you have this biotech firm you have your data and and you write a proposal to the FDA to say, listen, there's enough data here that we should take this to human trials? Is that, how does that work?
0: Good question. Um, It's not quite like that. That is, we go to the FDA and we say, listen, here's what we do to show that that this is safe to use in human beings. Uh, We show them the data we've got and they say to us, listen, you need to run the following other trials and get this data. To show it's effective or it's safe in human beings. Now, a lot of that data we have from ourselves or other studies. Uh, for example, we're using uh, in our intervention, we're using some gene therapies that have been used in other uh, patients quite safely. Um, but we still we have to answer their questions about safety. Uh, and then they turn to us and say, "That's good data. Go ahead with the human study." And then we do what's called a phase one FDA trial. Uh, where typically we'll do a dozen patients, and we'll be treating Alzheimer's patients and following them up over a six-month period.
1: Mm-hmm. And so at this point, your tech company, your biotech company needs to raise the funds to what... Just tell me about that. What's, what's, what are the finances involved with this? Well,
0: the, the finances, again, are sort of interesting because for us there are... Four criteria. The first one is credibility. Uh, We cannot afford to take a misstep. No one has ever succeeded in doing this before, and if we announce positive data, people should look askance at that. So we have to be very careful to do it right. The second is safety. We want to make sure that we don't do anything that, in fact, will cause anyone harm. The third is efficacy. It doesn't do any good to run a trial unless you've done it so well that if it does work, you can prove it does work. So we don't want to make a misstep there. And the fourth is cost. We want to make sure that when this comes out, and it will, uh, that we can make sure that the cost of this is sufficiently low, and it will be, uh, that will actually be a savings rather than a cost, um, that is to people who are using it, compared to the cost of treating Alzheimer's disease, it will be. So those are the concerns for us. The cost of this turns out to be a lot less than any other drug company would use. Somebody asked me about that, and I said it's a matter of efficiency. Uh, you know, If you aim at the wrong target, you will waste a lot of money. If you aim at the right target, you can do this for very little. Now, very little um, from the from the pharmaceutical standpoint uh, is different than very little from my personal standpoint. Yes, that's right. right. Um, you know, this the to, for us to get through a phase one human trial runs us at just about ten million dollars. Ten point three is the budget. Mm, wow. Um, right now, comparing that to you know, Biogen spent more than three quarters of a million dollars on a study that people felt didn't work for the same sort of uh, same sort of disease. So yes, we will be saving money. But again, that's that's certainly more than I have in my pocket. Thank you so much. So what we have is a group now of about a dozen interested parties in funding us. But interest and enthusiasm don't allow me to sign contracts. Mm-hmm. We can move ahead as soon as we actually have the cash to do it. And that's our first stumbling block.
1: Mm-hmm. What's your sense of urgency? I mean, you've dedicated your life to this. You are very confident that this is the way to approach Alzheimer's. And it sounds like what you're telling me right now is the hurdle is, is just financial.
0: Well, in a sense it is, but it's also conceptual. Um, you know, what, what we're suggesting is, is innovative. It's different than other people's models. Most people, uh, you know, I I remember talking to the chief scientist of one of the the big pharmaceutical uh, corporations in the world, and her take was it's all beta amyloid. Well, uh, our model, the model that that I put out last week, suggests that it's a lot more complicated than that. And for her to accept my model would actually be to undercut what she's spent 40 years of her professional career doing.
1: And all that, and all that, those funds that have been spent...
0: And they have Um, and so for example i know biogen is is moving ahead with with more trials and in a sense more expense Um, but the same is true of the investment community you know if if i'm a major venture capital group and you come to me with a proposal like this the very first thing i do if i take it at all seriously is i turn to an expert and i say does this make sense to you now most of the experts again have been working at sort of component ideas about alpha mm. and they look at it and say well it's not beta amyloid and it's not tau tangles therefore it can't make sense mm-hmm. so it, it's a different approach it's sort of like what quantum theory went through at the turn of the last century beginning of the last century uh, you know everybody knew that classical physics answered most of the questions mm-hmm. as it does but there were some things it didn't quite answer and so when quantum mechanics came out people said that's nuts well it's certainly complicated and it's certainly difficult but on the other hand, it's what allowed us to have GPS and cell phones. Um, we wouldn't be able to do this if it weren't for an understanding of quantum mechanics. And that's sort of where we stand. It's, it's a novel approach. A lot of people are very excited about it. But, uh, it, you know, if I'm a venture capital group, by nature, I'm, I'm certainly I, I'm looking at a certain amount of risk. But I also hmm, have to be hmm. conservative. And yes. the people I talk to tend to look at it and say, I don't quite get this. This is not classical physics anymore. What do you mean quantum mechanics? I don't quite get what you're getting at. Mm-hmm. It's, so it's a different approach. It's a, it's an obstacle.
1: Yeah, you're ahead of your time in a sense. Well, I,
0: I think so. But as I say, the truth is in the clinical trial. We will mm-hmm. see. I'm pretty mm-hmm. confident we can do this. I'm very confident, actually. But it means testing it. And we want to make sure we do it right.
1: Mm-hmm. Where can people reach you to find out more about your work and, and more about your company, Telesight?
0: Uh, they can go to the website, which is just com, mm-hmm. T-E-L-O-C-Y-T-E, mm-hmm. and look there. And that's probably the easiest way. Uh, we have a registry of patients. We have additional information mm-hmm. we can we can send out. There's a lot there on the website. Uh, they can certainly get a copy of the paper, which is not hard now. It's it's turned out to be open access. The publishers decided to make it free for everybody, which is another compliment. In fact, the, it was interesting. The editors say that this paper is the most important paper they've ever published.
1: Mm. Well, I, wow. It's a, a
0: compliment. I hope it's I hope it works out. I think we're we're right. But it's nice to hear that.
1: So it sounds like you're pretty confident that we're on our way to curing Alzheimer's.
0: I think so, Nicole. I mm-hmm. think that, that you know, the best message I can give people out there is that there is a better way to look at this and it makes more sense and it's got promise that nothing else ever had. Mm-hmm. We're not looking at band-aids. We're looking at frankly the possibility of curing Alzheimer's. When I talk to, I've been on some of these global recruitment calls where big pharma and and biotech companies are looking for patients for their Alzheimer's trials. And most of them are fairly honest about it. They say, listen, there's no way we can stop it, let alone cure it. What we're hoping to do is to slow it a bit, to give people an extra couple of years, an extra couple of months. Um, And from our perspective, that's not at all what we're looking at. We're confident that we can not simply slow it, and not simply stop it, but actually reverse some of the cognitive decline. There must be limits. Um it's I think of you know the humpty- dumpty phenomena. There's some things that you can't get back in the shell again. But no, the, you know for a number of theoretical reasons, we think we can actually improve people's ability to think and remember and daily life activities. We think we can improve it, and the animal data back it up. And we've seen some remarkable things happen when we use the same approach in animals. So yes, I think we can do this. Um, I don't know that. Uh, I I used to say, you know, about certain things, I you know, I bet five cents on this. I wouldn't bet my pension. No, I have bet my pension on this.
1: Wow. I bet my wow. pension
0: entirely on this. We'll and, do this. And,
1: and as you know, one of the uh, elements of aging well is leaving a legacy. This is quite some legacy.
0: Well, I hope it's a legacy for the people who have this uh, and not just for me. Um, I, I often have noticed that, you know, when it comes to legacies, if you're lucky, you, you don't become famous. It's, it's sort of a personal disaster. Um, but it is, I think, a legacy for people who need this. There are a lot of people who suffered. Our CEO's mother died of this. Uh, one of the people who first got me involved in this back in the early 90s, a friend of mine, um who published some of the early data on this i just found out two days ago has alzheimer's in fact i'm going out to see him in california in two weeks Mm -hmm. um no there are people out there who need this uh, and it's not a personal legacy it's a very personal legacy for other people
1: Mm -hmm. well thank you so much for explaining that and helping us understand the system approach and Uh, Really fascinating and exciting. And uh, I wish you very, very best luck in (laughs) in getting the funding to do the FDA trials and and make uh, an enormous headway in what is, you know, a really horrendous disease.
0: Let me say one final thing. Um, Actually, Alzheimer's is just a start. The, the As the article says, this is not just about Alzheimer's, it's certainly also about Parkinson's and frontotemporal dementia and all the other age related dementias and, and CNS diseases you can think of. But as I hint in the summary, that's not the end of it either. Um, this same approach is probably equally effective in dealing with things like age related cardiovascular disease that is, strokes, heart attacks, aneurysms, uh, peripheral vascular disease, congestive heart failure. All of those things come under the same systems approach um so for us it's just a start
1: Mm -hmm. well congratulations on your success so far and best of luck for the future
0: thanks nicole and best of luck to people who need it too I, i think what we can do is not extend human lives but extend the quality of human lives enormously
1: excellent thank you so much thank you Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at nicolechristina.com. In this phase of our lives, we're more aware that our time is precious, and we certainly don't want to waste it taking care of stuff that we no longer need, left over from a life that we are no longer living. We know we would feel better with less clutter and more open space, but we don't know how to get there. If this sounds familiar, I'd love you to check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer, Carrie Luteran. This course is different than others you may have tried because we give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and tools to help you face the overwhelm and feelings that come up when you're going through your clutter. It's practical and realistic and the lessons are short and punchy and very manageable, but it has the power to change your life. We all deserve to live in a peaceful home without the chaos of too much stuff. Find out more at NicoleChristina.com.